Welcome to the XY Advisor podcast. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. This episode is proudly sponsored by Integrity Life. Just like XY Advisor, Integrity isn't afraid to ask the hard questions. Like, why does quoting life insurance have to be so darn complicated? Why can't you just do it all online? Why can't underwriting be more consistent? And why can't claiming be just that little bit easier? To find out how Integrity is doing all these things differently and more, head to integritylife.com.au forward slash XY. G'day, how's it going? What do you know? Striker like Clayton here from XY, chatting with Paul from AZNGA. Now, uh, we very quickly went into where that name came from. So essentially, you turned up, you hadn't thought the name through, uh, you came up with Next Gen uh, Advisory <laughs> on the spot, and then the AZ came later. So what's the story there? Oh, man, I, I have seen and been part of some seriously scary brand building stuff in, in my institutional career, and uh, the amount of money and time spent on this stuff. I honestly hadn't really thought about it. And um, I was filling out this application form for a shell company. I was actually at the ASIC registry desk in their office in Sydney. And the lady said, oh, we need a name. And I hadn't, honestly, I hadn't thought about it. And so I'm standing there with my accountant, actually. And uh, and I said, what are we going to call this thing? And uh, we came up with next generation advice, but it had already been taken. So... Um, uh, we then said advisory, and that one was free, and so away we went. And then, away. where's the AZ come from? Uh, well, that that was I mean, AZ and Jazz, not the most um, <laughs> you know uh, amazing sounding brand, is it? But the AZ bit came from uh, an association we made later. So I actually met an Italian company called Azimut Group, and that was a complete chance meeting. In actual fact, it was a forty-five minute meeting where we did a deal, which six years later has been life changing. But wow. they they have the prefix AZ. Yes. next to the companies that they invest in in the countries that they invest in around the world. And so we just put the AZ in front of the Next Generation Advisory. Right. And next thing, we're AZNGA, right? So it's... Uh... <laughs> Mate, that's... Um, uh, it, with XY Advisor, when we started it, we didn't have a name either. And one of us had a, a blog that was basically no one was paying attention to called XY Advisor. And we were oh, yeah. like, ah, save registering another URL. We'll just take the name, <laughs> which is pretty funny. So I, I know exactly what you mean. But you, people... What's awesome also about what you just said is the amount of time that people can waste on branding thinking it's going to make a difference is crazy. Yeah, look, well, actually, I, I, sh- I should be a bit careful with my comments. My, my partner actually runs a branding agency, so I'll be careful what I say. But, I mean, brand brand and brand spend is actually vitally important it and is. plays a role. Just in my case, I hadn't, I, hadn't, uh, I hadn't done the work. Now, admittedly, you fast forward to now, six years later, and I realize, gee, we better do some work on that. So we're actually investing uh, quite a bit at the moment on, on getting our brand schmick. Awesome, awesome. Full, full 360 there. Um, yeah. So, is your partner also a part of your rock band? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but my ex-boss is. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, my, when I went to Colonial First State, uh, the CEO, Brian Bissaker, he's actually the drummer. No yeah, way. Yeah, he's the drummer. So, um, uh, so he's the drummer in the rock band. We, we play 90s grunge, uh, yes. which of course is the music we were all brought up on and that's awesome. Love Rock it. and roll. So uh, the, it's it's an interesting thing. Um, finance 
and uh, music in general, right? Because mm. the finance is such this, especially corporate finance. Now, personal finance and financial advisors deal with the individual aspect of money and help people, you know, come up with goals and do all that sort of emotional stuff. But corporate finance, which is on the banking side, right, is really, it's quite mm, surgical, right? Yep. It's it's very rational. It's, it's how, you know, huge numbers. And what I find interesting is when people are, uh, have a creative pastime, mm. a, a, almost like a creative outlet, it operates as a really nice uh, balancing act, I find, to finance. So coming from a background of music, which I do, getting into finance, I find it gives me the ability to think a little bit differently about surgical things. Yeah, yeah. I, I find it has an advantage probably not everyone would agree yeah. to that, but at least from where I'm sitting, I kind of go, okay, cool. Like I can see where the problems are and I understand, you know, I'm a, I'm an SME in finance, right? Uh, but I, I, I do think about things a little bit differently. Do you find that maybe your personality trait um, that enjoys music helps you in, a, in an environment that's otherwise quite surgical? Oh, for sure. But but some of the most surgical people and technical people that I know are the most creative. I, I mm. actually reckon everyone's got creativity in them. Absolutely. And you've just got to find that that avenue to unlock it. Um, my, my business partner's a good a good case study here. He actually is an aerospace engineer. So he, he used to design you know weapon systems and automatic pilot systems and this sort of stuff on 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 military aircraft. Wow. So he he's he's kind of literally a rocket scientist, this guy, right? Um, and an incredibly creative. Most people would, would look at Paul and think he's highly technical. Yes. But in terms of problem solving, you know, if I if I put to Paul a typical business problem or an M and A issue we're trying to grapple with, yes. and I leave that with him for a couple of days, the creativity and the solutions he comes back with are incredible, absolutely incredible. But for me, I mean, um, you know, cre- creativity is in designing your business model. It's in not so much in the brand, obviously. Well, that's gonna <laughs> that's gonna ch- that's gonna change in time. Uh, but we, as an organisation, pr- promote being creative and innovative every step of the way. And in fact, entrepreneurship is a big a big part of this. Yeah. And we we think that building businesses you really want to try and foster entrepreneurship. You want to be able to bring that in. You want to be able to grow that and keep it. Even in businesses like ours, where we're actually acquiring or investing in other firms. We've got to keep that entrepreneurial spirit alive because entrepreneurship and creativity are kind of, you know, one and the same yes. in, in a business context. Um, and, and to get into that a, a bit more. So uh, a key thing, uh, what your firm does is uh, you, you have a funding arm and you ha- you help companies M and A or or transition owners out and bring you in. Um, what are you looking for in the market in terms of companies to purchase or or, or at least help facilitate uh, a buy sell? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we we we're really a gentle breeze at the back of financial services SMEs. You know, if you think about all of the the headwinds and the challenges and opportunities that financial services SMEs have faced in the past and they're facing now. We just try and help them. So we try and be that gentle breeze at their back, whatever their direction is. And, and we're looking to back entrepreneurs. So we're looking to back people who have real clarity about what they're trying to do, what they're good at, who they're trying to help and how they're trying to help them, you know, who are clear about their timeframes and about their end game. And we, and we seek to understand that and then do whatever it takes to try and help them. Now, obviously, investing in firms is the way that we get into that relationship. But once that bit's happened... 
there's any number of things that, that we help them with from you know conflict resolution in the office right through to wow. you know, full-scale M&A, marketing, um, and all the things that SME businesses have to deal with in between. Yeah, right. Um, and and uh, how did you get into this? Oh, it's 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 been you know like most things um, you know, that have any degree of sort of momentum in your life, probably two parts skill and eight parts luck. Um, <laughs> and 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 seriously, luck has played a big part here. I mean, you, you, if I think about my journey, I spent a lot of time in the big institutions and in the, in the banks in particular, and prior to that, big funds management companies. And the last probably last probably four or five years of my corporate career, I could see a real change happening in that wealth management banking relationship. Mm. And I was thinking about when I was walking down here this morning, actually, I was thinking about what happens in, in, in winning cultures, in teams that for a long time keep winning. And if you think about the big institutional ownership of wealth management firms over the last you know, two or three decades, if you think about wealth management before wealth management was owned by the big end of town. It was a very competitive industry. You had to fight and scrap for, for, for every sort of win and every new client. Banking was more of an oligopoly, in my view, not quite as, as competitive. And when those two cultures got blended together, over time, you know, the wealth management businesses actually became a little less uh, sharp, a little less nimble, and a little less competitive, frankly. And about three or four years before I left, I could see that change happening, and, and, and I was thinking about the future. And I realized, you know, I wanted to get out into the world of, you know, SMEs and, and get close to SMEs and out of that institutional environment. And when, you've, when you're in that environment for a long period of time where, you know, market share is coming easy, mm. um, you, you, do, you do forget uh, or you do lose that focus or you can lose that focus on innovation and, and having the best of breed products and services. And you, you can fall into the trap of taking your market share for granted. And I think that was starting to happen in, in the space. And of course, we've all seen what's, uh, what's, what's well, transpired. Yeah was transpired since um and of course I, I think about sports teams i think about the team of my cricket team that i've been coaching i've been coaching the young kids cricket team for a long time now and last couple of seasons you know our culture in that cricket team because we've been winning a lot has become more about winning and less about the participation and the journey etc and as a coaching group recently we realized hey we have to go back to grassroots we have to go back to Hang on, this is about kids and cricket and development and enjoyment, and that's that's what we're going to do this year. We're going to re rebalance it. But when you're getting that market share and that dominance, season in, season out, season in, season out, you can fall into the trap of a culture that's more short term focused and at times focused on your own needs rather yeah. than the client, or in this case, the kids, or in you know my case, financial planning firms. Yeah. So yeah, we um. So I, I wanted to get out of that environment and uh, and into something that was truly focused on the SME, and not on the short term return. And and I wanted to put together a long long term investment proposition, uh, where we could genuinely partner with these SMEs for many many years and help them sustain their brands and their businesses and and their relationships with their staff and clients. Uh, for as long as possible. That's awesome. How does that work, say, in regards to a licensee? Are you seen as someone getting in the road or are you seen as, oh, thank goodness, they can take it off our hands? 
I think when we first started, the licensees, if you think about it, six years ago, the licensee landscape was very different to what it is today. Gotcha. And so six years ago, the licensees were a little worried about what our motives were. They, they, I think back in the back of their minds, they wondered whether or not we wanted to be a licensee. In fact, I got asked that question. I reckon I got asked that question on a daily basis for the first <laughs> couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Every time I could stop on the street with someone I knew, they'd say, you know, what are you doing with the licensee proposition? And of course, six years later, we're still not a licensee. And, and all the things I said back then, i.e. we don't want to be a licensee. Up until now, we've, we've um, been true to that. And so there was a bit of a, there was a, bit of a, a perception of a threat there, I suppose. So... Um, but we were licensee agnostic. And in fact, to this day, we've never actually asked one of our firms or influenced one of our firms to move licensee. Uh, if they've moved, they've done it on their own accord or they've done it because the licensee shut its doors or whatever. Yep. Um, so, yeah, look, um, that's over time, so six years ago. Over time, you know, today, licensees obviously have gone through massive changes uh, post the big institutions exiting the space and the Hain Royal Commission and everything else that's that's happened. Uh, so... You know, we look at the licensee slightly differently now. Um, you know, we back back in in those days, they were an important provider of an important service, and obviously the licensing component. Today, they're still that, um, albeit more focused than they were before. Because in the old days, licensees through the subsidy systems that they they um, had access to would try and do a bunch of other things other than licensing. So totally. they'd do, you know, maybe a little bit of succession stuff, business development, planning, growth, a whole bunch of stuff, conferences, all that. Because those subsidies have gone, I think licensees have to ask themselves the question, what are we really in the business of? You know, what's our core proposition? Yes. And they've got the ultimate challenge of scarce resources yeah. and on and unlimited demands on those resources. So yes. how, do they, how do they do it? Um, personally... I think the license to operate is a vitally important component uh, for financial services SMEs. Quality assurance should be celebrated. It sh- people should run towards it. Yes. Um, they shouldn't run away from it. And I yes. think licensees play an incredibly valuable role at that. Yeah. But I think they should go deep and narrow yes. at that. Oh, absolutely. It, it it's boggles the mind that you've got the amount of compliance problems that exists in financial advice whereas that's truly the point of the licensee. Make sure that the advisor is giving compliant advice. A licensee isn't a business coach. I agree. But they just wanted to add in additional services because the cash was there. But the core functionality, I mean, there's such huge holes in it that just do that really well. I think so. And you look at FMCG businesses. I happen to be involved with a company called Four Pines Brewing Company. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, I've been involved for a long time with that firm. And and, and I look at the way they approach quality assurance. The the amount of money they spend on stainless steel and equipment that is all about making sure that the liquid that goes in those bottles is is fit for consumption Mm. and is not going to create any issues you know in terms of sterilization all those sorts of things it's phenomenal and and they celebrate the investment in quality assurance they celebrate the investment in the systems and the and the machines and the chemicals and all of that stuff that goes into making sure their product is fit for consumers and in financial services historically that hasn't you know that that role that that element of quality assurance hasn't been celebrated it's been seen as a bit of a necessary evil yeah and i think there's a lot to learn from manufacturing companies around qa and certainly in our business we talk about it in those terms and you know i have a relationship with a number of licensees and and we, we have this discussion all the time and frankly the licensees who can show that they do that really well i think in the long run 
uh, will be the winning licensees, irrespective of what happens with the regulatory framework in terms of, you know, does the old licensee construct survive or do we have individual licenses and all that stuff? Yeah. I don't think that matters that much. There's always going to be a role for a professional services company that focuses on quality assurance yes. and delivers that to SMEs in financial services, whether they be planning firms, uh, accounting firms, property advisory companies, you name it. Yeah. And I think that's the opportunity for some of these licensee businesses. Where do you see advice? Uh, obviously, there is, there's companies like yours out there that have the bullish view of financial services in this country over the, ne- over the future. Um, what do you see it? What are you looking for? Where do you see it going? Let's say five years from now, what are the successful financial planning companies doing? Yeah, I think there's, at the moment, you know, if you think about the way we've looked at the marketplace, we've sort of talked about financial planning firms and accounting firms and mortgage brokers as individual sort of sectors almost or subsectors. What I see happening is a real convergence. And so the professional services companies who are able to bring multidisciplinary specialties to the table, yeah. I think, are going to be the winners. And people often mistake me when I say that as, 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 as sort of being pro-building big generalist practices. In actual fact, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is specialization and deep and narrow capability is something consumers want to pay for. Yes. If you can assemble a number of those specialties together under one roof and offer them to a consumer as somewhat an end-to-end proposition, and you can do that in a decent scale, uh, on a decent scale, I think that is going to be the future for professional services companies. And you'll talk less about financial planners and accountants and more about professional services companies. Where, yeah, the, you this company takes care of my my professional life. So anything with a dollar sign attached to it, I go to this place yeah. and, and someone in that company is going to know everything they need to know about me in order to make the best decision. Yeah, and it might not be, look, it might not be cradle to grave or completely, you know, holistic. It might just be three or four specialties. Sure. And there might be other firms they can introduce clients to for other things. But I suppose what I'm really saying is, you think about it from a consumer point of view. Think about it from your own you know, consumer point of view. When you're in front of someone who is a specialist, you know they are. Oh, yeah. You can feel it. You can you can tell. You walk into their foyer. If you think about a, a specialist a medical person, you can tell straight away. And you are willing to pay for it. When they tell you the bill, you don't you don't question it. You, you just pay. Yes. And I think the smart professional services firms are going narrower and deeper on their service proposition to their consumers. But that doesn't mean they're just doing one thing. They might have two or three different things they do, but they're specialists at. And those are the firms we are looking for. Um, And we're looking for other firms too, don't get me wrong. But we really like that model. We think it's going to be a successful model into the future. When you say you're looking for it, do you approach companies that you think are doing things well or do you wait for them to come to you? What's your acquisition methodology? It has to be both. I mean, it would be naive of me to think that, um, you know, we knew everyone. In fact, once we got involved in the accounting space in particular, we realized just how small the financial planning industry was because – I mean, the accounting world has been around oh, yeah. a lot longer. Oh, yeah. um, it's a lot bigger and, and, and it really is a, a massive, a massive sector. So um, it's a bit of both. But, you know, we, it comes back to your first question about brands. You know, I mean, we do need to do more work on our brand and, and how we get the name out there because that marketplace is huge. And we can't, we can't assume that people are going to just know us. So we have to do more work on that. But yeah, a bit of both. Interesting. Um, do you see what role, or I, I, not even what role, to what extent is inbuilt tech into the process of the companies that you're 
dealing with important for you? Do you, do you have sort of a, a one to 10 scale in your mind that says, this company has zero, my prosperity, you know, the, are you looking for certain things or, or are, you, are you introducing efficiencies or when you walk into a practice, how much of your headspace is how efficient are, are things? What's the user experience like because of the tech and, and what are you looking at? Yeah, good question. I mean, for I think our starting assumption is that you're not going to find much in terms of, you know, really slick technology in, in SME businesses because they're SME businesses, right? Yeah. They, they haven't had the budget to spend on this stuff like the big institutions have had. Yes. And in financial planning in particular, because financial planning for so long has been seen as a means to an end, i.e. distribution business, that it, it never received the big bucks totally. in terms of capital investment. Now, yeah. our whole strategy is to change that because we are investing in those businesses and we are trying to find those technological advances and efficiency tools. So we're out there on behalf of our firms doing heaps of work, to, talking to lots and lots of people about technology and what that offering is so that our small SME businesses don't have to spend their time doing that. Yes. And then we bring them what we find. But what, what we find in that space at the moment is lots of great ideas mm. and lots of embryonic businesses and and you know lots of beta testing, but in terms of real breakthrough technology, there's still a way to go. Um, yes. And I think there's going to be a lot of losers in in that space. Um, we've got to try and find who the winners are. Uh, you mentioned some just then, and the ones you mentioned um, are all pretty good um, offerings. In fact, we we do we do look for firms who are using them and in fact we do encourage our firms to use those tools but yeah um there is a long way to go there's a big big gap at the moment between the promise and the execution when it comes to technology in these sme businesses oh yeah oh yeah yeah that's um tech is so important at this stage i i, I was speaking with um just on the podcast with matt hind the ceo of uh, net wealth um and he said something really interesting uh, it was a really good way of of uh, articulating it he said people's expectations of service is dependent upon the last experience they had and then he went on to say and that is more often than not a large silicon valley experience mm. so it's it's google maps mm. it's facebook it is you know you where we our expectation is trillion dollar right mm. our expectation is apple who just hit two trillion dollars mm. you know I, I want i want to pick this up i want to feel the the value in it and then i want everything to work seamlessly and perfectly and all of my problems are solved right <laughs> well Matt, matt's matt's deploying uh his apple stuff better than i am then because my experiences with the trillion dollar companies aren't as good <laughs> especially facebook i can't navigate that thing for love nor money <laughs> well, that's a really good point but but at the same time uh uh an advisor might not even have digital signatures set up yet. So they're, they're, they're saying to their clients, hey, can you print this form out, mm. please, and just fill it in with a pen and then find a scanner and mm. then email me a copy of this PDF? Like, like those, those, the, the, the fact that right now we're having those two experiences is – it proves your point, which is we've got a long way to go. Oh, yeah. The investment – look, the, the simple answer is the investment hasn't been there. But, I mean, companies like like uh, NetWealth and, and some of the other companies you've mentioned are actually starting to change those those sorts of things. And, and, and they are investing in you know, pretty smart technology. But there is a long, long way to go. I mean, the big end of town you're referring to, I mean, these companies, as you say, they've put 
trillions of dollars or at least billions of dollars yes. into their programs. So yes. we're a long way from that, obviously. And that said, I mean, there are, I mean, electronic signatures, for example. I mean, DocuSign's a pretty handy tool, right? We we use that we, we, with our M&A process. When we first started, we used to physically sign thousands and thousands of pages of documents to do a deal. These days, it's oh, all on DocuSign. Was it, it's was all it electronic. with a quill on a feather and <laughs> dipping it in yeah. ink? That was the uh, the old big ballpoint pen. But, you know, the, these days it's DocuSign. Now, DocuSign's a really great tool. It's easy to use. Um, oh, yeah. There's another issue at play here too, and that's the regulatory settings. I mean, you know, regulation has to keep pace with technology as well. And it, there are times in the development cycle where it doesn't. So you might have some kind of cool tool you want to deploy in a financial services context, but you can't because the regulations weren't allowed. And yes. for a long time, yeah, signatures were, electronic signatures were, were, were an issue, but not so much anymore. But yeah, look, I, I would agree. Although I must say, um, even the even the multi-billion dollar companies I mean, I'm sure plenty of people listening to this can recall frustrating experiences with those businesses. And I mean, Facebook in particular, right? I, oh, yeah. I do. I really oh, struggle yeah. with it. Um, so it's not that easy. If it's not easy for those guys. Totally. If you're an SME business in the suburb of, you know, Seaforth in Northern Beaches in Sydney or wherever you are. Yes. And you're trying to deploy an efficient consumer solution. It's hard, right? Gotcha. It's, yeah. it's really hard. But one thing that's overlooked, I reckon, is because we all look for that silver bullet tech solution, right? Yes. Some of the solutions to efficiency can be deployed really easily with little or no spend yes. and they can be deployed today. Oh, DocuSign, perfect example. Well, DocuSign is probably a more complex example than what I'm thinking about. Right. I'm, I'm thinking about basic workflow. If, if you spent the time doing a time and motion study in your business mm. of all the tasks that all of your employees are doing on a daily basis and yes. you catalog that, you will find enormous amounts of opportunity for improvement, big improvement, uh, through just change in process, policy, protocol. Let, you know, forget technology. And we did this with a firm in, uh, in Chatswood recently. So we actually we actually sat and watched and monitored time, minutes spent on tasks in this office wow. over, over a significant amount of time. And then we put small interventions in and then we re- recorded the after impact and it was significant it was significant uh, we, we were talking you know i can't remember off the top of my head the numbers but it was significant numbers of hours saved and productivity enhancements in this firm and so it doesn't ha- we, we go looking for this big answer this big golden sort of tech solution but there are other things right in front of us we can do that's super interesting um how if i'm sitting if i'm an advisor sitting here and going that sounds amazing how do i get that how Easy. do I- how? Put this KPI in place tomorrow. One improvement idea has to be nominated by each staff member per week. And the improvement idea has to be able to be implemented for less than, put a dollar limit on it, it might be $200 or $500. And it needs to be executable within two weeks or a week or whatever you decide. And get that happening in your business every week for the next five years. And you watch the improvement that you get in productivity and ultimately profitability, right? I, totally. I, I actually learned that skill in the back office when I worked at Colonial First State because the, the call center and client services team that did that, now they did it per team per week thing. All their reward and recognition systems over you know the course of a year, bonuses, everything linked back to that what they call continuous improvement program. We put it in place at Four Pines uh, as well. 
and it made a massive, massive impact on four pines. It, did you stop um, making each employee start the day with a six pack? Was, one, was, that, <laughs> was that one of the efficiencies? That helped a lot. <laughs> it took a long time to get everyone to agree to it. That helped a lot, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to work there. Um, super int- Actually, going to uh, your colonial first state days, what do you think was the goal of entering into the wealth management? And then what do you think was ultimately what got in the way of it succeeding? I think it comes back to my other comments. I mean, if you think about a business like Colonial, when they first, you know, before they were owned, right back on day one, and Colonial, Colonial, by the way, was coming together a lot of different businesses. But when those businesses all started, they would have started in a highly competitive, growing wealth management sector with a view to building the best product or service they could. And those businesses did, you know, you think about the original Colonial First State um, asset management business. I mean, it was a wonderful business. And and that was their, that was the motive. And ultimately, if you follow the, the you know, last, say, three decades, um, the, the big institutions, in particular the banks, started buying up these assets uh, to diversify their income streams and profit streams, um, you know, away from just relying on net interest margins into this uh, growing wealth management sector. And I think for a while it worked fine. I, I think whilst those wealth management people were able to run those businesses the way they always had, I think it it was working pretty well. And, and then of course you had the advent of, of of retail platforms, and that was you know in part due to the investment put into those systems by by the banks, etc. But I think ultimately it comes back to what I was saying before. You keep, you know, you, you you start winning. You start winning market share. You start winning awards. You start, right. you start sort of getting very dominant. And short term thinking starts getting in the way. I think the biggest mistake any business of any size can make is looking at its share price every day, and or looking at its bone. You know, an individual employee looking at what their bonus is going to be next month or or, or next six months. When you start focusing on short-term objectives, you will start doing things differently. You will change your behavior. You'll change the, the the sorts of services you take to market will change. The way you think about execution will change. Lots of things. Culture will change. Yes. The key is to keep a long-term perspective at all times and making sure you've got alignment from the top to the bottom of the organization so that everybody is thinking long-term. That's really hard. You know, it's it's you, you can't, you can't blame your know, big 60,000 employee organizations for finding that difficult. It's a really hard thing to do. Impossible. Right? I wouldn't say impossible. Really? I wouldn't say impossible. It comes down to one simple uh, concept, which is very difficult to execute. Yes. And that is alignment. Yes. If you can truly get alignment between a client, an employee, and a shareholder, yeah. you can do it. The bigger your organization gets, the more layers there are between the person facing the client yes. and the shareholder, the harder it is to do. So how do you do it? You've got to try and simplify your organization. You know, watching people on the stand at Royal Commissions not being able to answer questions is a sign that the organization is too complex or too large or whatever. I, mean, I know what you mean, it's, yeah. It's, it's not as quite as simple as that, but... But there is a grain of truth in here. Yes. And if you can, you, often people try and make their businesses seem more complex than they need to be. Um, Simplification is the key. The more simple you can make your business model, the more simple you can make the execution of what you're doing, 
the more chance you've got of getting alignment between the shareholder, the employees and management team, and the client. So it can it can be done. And that requires huge clarity. You've got to be very, very clear on what it is you're trying to do. If you get distracted and go off in tangents in different directions, that's when things start getting murky and you lose alignment. I think um, if Ferrari wasn't already subscribed to this podcast, I think he's uh, listening now going, oh, interesting. I might write that one down. What, what, what it, I mean, if you look at something like an AMP, right? What do you what do you see as the fundamental? Oh, and the reason I bring up AMP is because in financial services in this country, love it or hate them, they are almost the godfather of financial services in this country, right? And and someone's had something to do with it. Probably you know the majority of people in this in this country have worked, or or at least been connected to AMP or or, or one of its affiliates. Um, and I, I think no one wants to see it go down. There, there's sort of uh, an emotional desire to see AMP thrive. Do you have a view on uh, what's going on there at the moment? What they could look to do differently? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. AMP has been a really important part of the, the financial landscape in Australia for so long, and, and you don't want to see it go down. You, you, yeah. you want to see it succeed and, and, and prosper, obviously. I think it's an example, though. When I think about the AMP, and I've never worked there, by the way, so take take my comments with you know with a grain of salt. I've, ne- I've never worked there, so I can't I can't give you any detailed perspective from the inside. But one thing I will say from a competitor point of view, because I have worked in organisations that were competing with AMP, is when the when things were happening in in obviously the Royal Commission and and, and the things that have you know, been talked about publicly in the last little while, the the sensation I have watching what's unfolding there is it's a bit like. It's a bit like AMP was a walled city, and you think about those those European towns that, that that had walls around them. Yeah. If you've got a, if you're on the inside of a, of a city like that, um, over for a long, long time, over time you lose a bit of perspective about what's going on outside the wall. Yes. Okay. And it feels to me what's happened in the last year or two is that those walls have slowly come down. And the people on the inside looking out have been saying, okay, that's what goes on outside the wall. The people on the outside looking in have been looking in saying, okay, that's what's been going inside the wall. And there's been quite, and it's almost like AMP's uh, been stuck in a bit of a, uh, you know, a bit of a time warp in a way. Um, but there are a lot of great people in that organization doing, doing great things and, and, and trying their very best. And, and that's always been the case, by the way. Yeah. Um, but there was a little bit of that element, I think, where some of the practices in, in, in the organization probably uh, weren't occurring outside of, of that organization. So look, where to from here? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, um, you know, what, what's been talked about in, in, the, in the papers and, and what have you in terms of the strategy. Um, let's just hope that uh, the AMP brand and, and its position in, in the Australian marketplace as a you know, supply, let's face it, over, over many, many, many decades to lots of Australians yeah. um, remains intact. You know, I think everyone wants to see that. Yes. Uh, and there, But there is a bit of a, uh, what's the word? Yeah, there's a bit of a realignment going on, I suppose, yeah. to, to adjust the organization's um, way of doing business to what's you know, expected in, uh, in the modern world. Yes. It's, um, I was just reading actually this morning, because they've already already got their class action going on, right? And then, and we've had Neil, who's uh, the head of the AMP FPA, uh, a couple of times just to talk about that. So, 
you know, obviously a very topical uh, uh, situation. But now, uh, actually, the, the, the same group, I think it's the same group or it might be a different group of planners are now going to the government and saying, you know, it's sort of taking, taking that, um, remember when Uber came in and the taxi drivers all got together and said, hey, government, you need to do something about this because this business model, sure, capitalism, but at the same time where, you know, and so there's a dollar per ride charge for any uh, any share ride that you take now, and that all goes to some taxi fund, right? Um, I think what's kind of happening is because the AMP bank gave the loan, and they on on their books they still expect to be repaid. The AMP company, which I mean, it went hand in glove that deal, and the AMP companies said, "Oh, well, we're going to remove the valuation," and so. There's, there's not only the class action, but there's actually uh, the going to government saying, well, you guys might want to look at this as well. Who knows? I, At its most uh, simple, and obviously I'm not a, a major shareholder in A&P, but at its most simple, if you're going to write down the value of a company with a stroke of a pen, you should also write down the debt. That's how I view it. And look, that that may that may behind closed doors be happening. Um, yeah, who, that's a good who point. knows? But but it, it comes back to it comes back to my point uh, about sort of the, the wall the wall city. You know those constructs that that were in place there. Yeah, had had largely um, been left behind in the outside world God, years yes. and years earlier. Oh yes, and so it's a good example of what I'm talking about. And and. You know, you've got this huge alignment breakdown between the, the stakeholders that you're, God, yes. you're talking about, which is what you know, has led to this situation. Um, but yeah, that's that's what happens when you've got closed architecture. I think open architecture is the way to go in this sector. When when you when you decide to create a an internal community where you know price is governed and and lots of other things are strictly governed um, in a closed way. I mean, you often hear AMP financial advisors refer to their environment as Hotel California. Okay, you can you can never leave. Um, they're not my words, but I, I hear those yes, words yes, 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 a yes, lot. Yes. And I think in the end, the key to success for any business is to be able to compete in the market totally and have market forces educate and inform you yeah. on what pricing is acceptable to consumers, yep. what services they are in demand. Yes. It goes back to those fundamental things I learned in Econ 101 at Victoria University in Wellington in 1998 right. in New Zealand. <laughs> you know, you've got, to, you've got to go back to that fundamental um, premise and let firms compete in an open architecture world. Fully and, and, and that, I think, spells the end of the vertically integrated model that we all knew. Yes, and welcomes in a new area, a new era of of, of open architecture, and I think that's what the AMP planners now want. In fact, I think it's what AMP wants. So yes, yeah, it's it's, it's truly. I mean, the transition, how it was transitioned, I guess, is really just the the only question whether it should transition or not. I think is is an argument that's well and truly over, but perhaps and and you know, time will tell. See how how it plays out. I'm interested to know how you value a company. So um, so. What are you looking? Is it just EBITDA, or are you looking for other things? Like, what what to you makes the valuation of a financial planning business high, and what reduces uh, the valuation? And then I want to ask, how does how, how do the sale and and transitions happen? How do young people get in? How how do people who want to retire get out? Like, so so let's talk valuation what are you looking for because i mean you're obviously highly involved in this space 
what are you looking for and how are you communicating with both parties? Well, the first thing I'll say is that the answer to your question has changed since we started. <laughs> because <laughs> if you'd asked me that on day one, I would have said probably we look at balance scorecard, you know, financials, client, process, people. Yep. Uh, and valuation would be a multiple of profit. That's what we would have said. And I could have given you some, some detail around that. Today, we do all those things. But, you know, what we're really looking for is capability. What is that narrow and deep source of strategic competitive advantage for that firm? What is it? So I was with a firm yesterday and I was asking you know, a range of questions, but the thing I was really trying to hone in on was what's their secret source? Mm. And I formed a view on what that was and it was actually a little different to the way they articulated it, right? So we'll form our own view through a DD conversation on what that capability is. The more valuable we perceive that capability to a consumer the more valuable place on that firm interesting so we will look at sure a multiple of profit we, we do all those usual things and create enterprise values and all that boring stuff right but the number that is the most important number in that financial equation isn't the multiple hmm. okay everyone focuses on the multiple hmm. what multiple do you pay paul hmm. do you pay seven eight nine ten what is it and i'll give an answer to that question but that's not the question that i'd be asking I'd be asking, what impact do you think or what EBIT do you think my company is going to generate in the future? Because we'll form a view on that. And that's the bigger impact in that valuation equation. So it, just because a company's making a dollar of EBIT today doesn't mean they will tomorrow. So we might form a view that they're only going to make 80 cents tomorrow or they're going to make $1.20 tomorrow. And that's how we'll value the business. And so we, we've developed quite a number of tools and we've had experiences, obviously, yes. that have enabled us to become educated to be able to do this. We don't do it perfectly, uh, but we are in a position where we, we can test our valuation because by definition, if we do a deal, a year later, we can look at the actual result or two years later or three years later to see if we got that day one value right. Yeah. And, and, and our accuracy is pretty good. But we look for capability. We look, we look to work out what's this company, its people, its, its resources, what are they going to deliver in the future? And that's how we think about valuation. That requires a lengthy conversation. You know, that requires not just your usual financial DD, but it requires a lot of meetings and a lot of discussion. And, uh, and it's hard with COVID, by the way. We just did our first deal, by the way, um, where we only had one face-to-face -face meeting. Um, so uh, we just uh, invested in a firm in Melbourne and that was a five-month process from start to finish. We had one face-to-face -face meeting, which was right at the beginning. The whole deal, and there were a lot of a lot of people involved, was done virtually. Wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So quite, quite, quite interesting yeah. experience for us. But look, we 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 know what we're looking for. It's and we really want to see what's the source of long-term sustainable competitive advantage. What is it? Is it a technology component? Is it a service proposition? Is it a skill set? What what is it? Is it a person? What is the source of that advantage? That's super interesting. So I, I put my advisor hat on. I've got my company. I have to have a view of why I think my company is going to be profitable in the long term. And then I have to talk to you about it and get that message across. And you have to agree. Yeah. And, and that's a combination of you telling me and us asking the right questions, but also just you know, getting in and talking to, to other members of the team, you know, understanding what other people use, and ultimately also clients, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, so you get you, you speak to the clients uh, as well sometimes, really? sometimes, yeah, sometimes. And and look, sometimes you can get quite a lot of information just out of an analysis of the client base. You don't necessarily need to talk to the clients. Yep. But the firms that are really good, 
know who their clients are. They can tell you. I mean, I was, I was with a firm yesterday who was able to tell me information about their clients that was very, very rich and detailed, you know, demographic, demographic information. And they, they clearly analyze this and they have a clear value proposition. It comes through in your DD. Mm. You, you can see the firms that are clear on their strategy yes. and know who they're trying to attract yes. and, those, and those who aren't. Do you see a time in business, do you see um, in, in the amount of transactions you've been a part of, the amount of DD that you would have done over the years, do you see a interesting at about the five-year mark or, or about the three-year mark or about the seven or ten-year mark, do, is, is there a pattern in your mind of what those successful financial planning firms are doing in terms of a, a timeline or is that not relevant it, it, do you say, well, that typically the companies that we get involved with are this of amount of years of age and for the last X amount of that, we feel like they've been doing a good job and from that we can, is, is, there, is, there, is, there, is there sort of like some sort of tr- pattern trend that you can see? Yeah, there are. There are there are lots of different patterns and trends. Timelines is an interesting one. Um, yes, uh, but we, there are other ones. You know, things like uh, the size of their wage bill, things like number of people, things like uh, just the general you know size of the firm in terms of its revenue, often give you slightly better indicators as to where they're at than say time itself. Interesting. Because um, you know, take for example, we did some analysis not that long ago where we saw that firms with a salary bill of greater than 1.7 million. So once you got past 1.7 million, performance started declining big time. Wow. So the, the purple patch was between half a million and 1.7 million. Wow. And, and on either side of that, your EBIT ratios fell away. And we, we did some analysis as to why. And we came to the conclusion that once you get to a certain size in terms of people, as you add more people in, you experience the law of diminishing returns yes. because you're getting additional complexity. Yes. Because the tech investment, most of these firms, they're not technology-driven um, businesses. They're people-driven businesses. Yes. So what happens is you start hiring people from other firms and they come in with their way of doing things. Yes. Before you know it, you've got multiple ways of doing things. Yes. And you get this efficiency, well, it's the opposite of a dividend. Um, <laughs> you yeah. don't get an efficiency dividend. You right. get an inefficiency dividend. Right. Um, and so... That's led us to this conclusion around multidisciplinary and narrow and deep. Because if you can, if you can build, say, half a dozen businesses with a salary bill of between half a million and one point seven million, yep. and you line them up as separate entities, yes, all been under one brand and one roof, yes, you can hit the purple patch of performance in all of those entities and have this awesome performing business. The key question is, how do you grow beyond that one point seven million of revenue, and continue to improve your EBIT margin. How do you do it? And I think that's where some technology is going to be required or some form of intervention and process is going to be required. And, and of course, we're working on these very challenges with our, our current firms. So that's one example. Um, but look, I think I'm a bit of a fan because a lot of people listening to this are probably sitting in you know, retail generalist practices and you know, wondering, well, how do you go from that to what I'm talking about? Yeah. And I think the simple answer to that is you've got to allow yourself the space to walk out of your existing business and ask yourself some questions around how would I do it if I started today? Okay, knowing all that I know, everything I've learned in the last 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it is, if I was starting today, how would I do it? Mm. And leave all of the, the baggage or what you've learned about your old business model to the side, forget it all. Okay, just forget it all and mm. start again conceptually. 
you don't then go back into your business and try and go from there to there straight away, but you try and prioritize and take the key things that you've learned through that exercise back to your to your mothership. And you can you can build a bridge and you can incrementally transform your business. It's it, we're doing it in our portfolio of firms today. We have plenty of generalist practices that don't look like the firm I just described before. Awesome. That we love and that we're working with to help wow. improve yeah. you know, their, their, their stuff. And, uh, you know, we, um, the, way that we actually, the way we started AZ in GA is the way I encourage people to think about it. We simply put a white sheet of paper on a dining room table, myself and my business partner, yeah. and asked five questions. Question one, what are we good at? Question two, who do we know? Question three, what problems do the people we know have to solve? Question four, what are the hardest problems they've got to solve? Question five, can we solve them? Right. We went through that process and came up with the AZNJ proposition. Right. Maybe a story for another day. But, <laughs> but, but that model works, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, if, if you're leading, if you're creating a business that's led by what's the hardest problem to solve and you can solve it, oh my, I mean, that's just a fantastic uh, scenario. To almost as the complete antithesis of that is uh, XY Advisor. We uh, <laughs> we started with no idea what we were going to be and what problem we were solving. And um, just being in market for six, seven years now at this stage, we've over that time just listened the entire time to what problems are you trying to... And, and over time, and we've, we've trialed so many different things over the years and we've landed on being almost a ludicrous thing of being a, a social media platform for financial planners you know like if, if someone turned up to me one day and said you know hey you should start a financial planning social media platform i'd be like uh are you crazy <laughs> yeah but but you but you will you day one you would have been going in a general direction right yes so so you don't you don't need to know the answer mm. like I, I found this hard myself when I, we first started this business because people were asking me in the first few months you know what are you doing where are you going and I was a bit like you right I mean we, yeah we'd answer those questions we had a kind of idea but when people said what's the end game where are you going I would say I don't really know a general direction I can talk to you about yes but I don't really know exactly where yes because you've got to be able to take inputs along the way from you know the the trading conditions and from consumers and from other stakeholders to try and work out exactly what your path is. Yeah. The analogy I use is you jump on a boat on the east coast of Australia, you might say, we're heading to North America. You don't need to say, I'm heading to uh, Los Angeles. Right. You just go in a general direction and then you read the, the currents along the way. You Eventually, the coastline becomes visible and you go, ah, now I know we're going to go to LA. Or right. That's kind of how I think yeah. of strategy. So, so you just you you've got a general idea, and the closer that you get to it, you learn along the way, and you start to pinpoint a, a little bit more effectively. You don't, yeah. You, the point is, you don't need to know exactly what the end game is. Day when you, you and often you, you're guessing, right? Yeah. And if you tell people that the end game is going to be LA, and you don't really know, yeah, they're going to smell it, yeah, and they're not going to believe in you. Yeah, that's a really good point. And 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 then putting my advisor hat on. I mean, you, you, the way that you mentioned that you work with generalists to become that deep specialist, right? Over time, um, you're not turning up to them day one and saying, hey, we like what you're doing, but we think you'd do this a lot better. You just say, hey, let's go on the journey to see what yeah, would work it. better. And we wouldn't invest in a firm if we didn't like what they were doing today. Totally. Um, we're not telling them what to do, um, but we're certainly sharing what we think uh, we've learned. So, 
you know, when you do quarterly board meetings with, you know, 40 financial services companies, you know, that's four times a year and you do it over and over and over and all the other interactions, you learn stuff. Yeah. Our job is to share that with our network. And if we see something that works, we're going to tell our network. It doesn't mean that they have to do that because they might have a different vision and a different objective. That's cool. Um, the fact that we invested in them, we like what they're doing now anyway. Yes. Uh, but that said, you know, this continuous improvement evolution humans have been good at that um and we want to keep keep pushing the envelope and getting better and you obviously enjoy what you do oh i love it i mean i but I, look i i loved my my corporate career in the big end of town too and and, yes. and learned so much there uh, but the time was right for me to to do something more entrepreneurial and uh that's a tough transition oh not, so hard. not everyone's able to do it oh it's so hard I, I, and i i often look at people who are thinking about doing it and i go but you're you're going to go from the person who's had uh, the as the recipient of a thousand minds over twenty years coming up with solutions, and and now you're going to have to. I mean, the amount of work that oh, you yeah. guys internally would have done compare that to your previous role is just uh, it's, it's it's day and night. It's crazy. I mean, you go from my last job. You know, you go from the high-rise building in you know the middle of sydney cbd with all of the things that go with that yes. to a windowless office in manly where i'm paying 124 dollars a week <laughs> for the seat uh with one person to help me yes and i had a team of you know, literally thousands in the old <laughs> like man I, I struggled big time i really really did the, fir yeah. the first i reckon it took me seriously it would have taken two years before I was really at peace with that. It, yes. And, you know, resource constraints. Um, God, of course. You know, no one to talk to. Like, the, it's actually a really lonely existence there for a, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and you, you, the highs and lows were intense because getting our first deal done, just our first deal done, our whole future depended on getting that first deal done, right? Yeah. Every word that the person would speak to us, the vendor, yes. we analysed. <laughs> okay does that mean they want to do the deal does that mean they don't want to do like we were we were hanging on every word they said we we were waiting for the phone to ring it was like oh that's surely they're gonna ring. like it was full on and you and you get caught in this little bubble and man it's it's intense yes. and then as you as you go on that journey those highs and lows they narrow a little bit yeah. um they're still there they're yes. still there today but yes. they're not quite as intense yes um but man it is a it's a real challenge. That 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 would make a really interesting um, discussion. Actually, just that topic alone. Oh, no, absolutely, and and that's I definitely wanted to ask it, but it's it's such a huge conversation. Mm. I think um, I, I've been uh, I've spent now the majority of my career um, in let's call it quote unquote entrepreneur land, right? Mm. Whether it was owning my own financial planning practice or or, or now you know uh, working with the team here at XY, but it is it's not always enjoyable. Like I have, I have a love hate relationship with it. I, I love it, but I certainly, it still annoys me. And then I think uh, the majority of these things that annoy me would be irrelevant. You know, I, I, I have a, I have an 11 week old, I think he is now my first son. Right. And it's kind of cool because we're in COVID. So I get to spend a bit of time with him. That's awesome. But we're also uh, at, in the last uh, stages of our second cap rates. Yeah. Right? And so, uh, so it's, 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 uh, mate, I love that you're waking me up at 3 a.m. in the morning <laughs> to have a chat. But at the same time, I've got like these, you know, four meetings that I have to kind of yep. be relatively fresh for. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I go, you know, if, if I was, if, if I'd stayed in corporate land, I'd be on probably some lovely, you know, relaxed maternity leave or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, have something gentle to come back to. But 
No, it's uh, it's there's what well, was quite hilarious actually. I, I he was born. And then the next day, I was back at meetings, uh, yeah. uh, and, and I'm sort of holding him on <laughs> my lap, in, yeah. being in Zoom yeah. and being like, "Hey guys, this is yeah. my son." Meet him, and then okay, cool. You know what's happening? Uh, that, that's a real cool element of this whole COVID thing because that, 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 that has become so much more acceptable. And, totally, uh, yeah. and that's cool. Yeah, it it, it is. Uh, I mean, little children coming in and interrupting meetings. Yeah. It, I, I'm now just you know it's yep. whatever. Cool. It's it's almost like. It's a little bit endearing where where yep. the everyone sort of gets to peek behind the the wall, the veneer yeah, of the professionalism. Yeah. Um, it, it does have its. I hope we can yeah. keep some of those definitely elements. Oh, mate, work has changed forever. Uh, my partner, she works for a, a relatively large sort of. Um, she's a business analyst in sort of a consulting firm, and they are they're very tech based, and uh, they've said you know, very comfortable with people working from home now. Yeah. And yeah. if you look at the Silicon Valleys and, and all of them are, are taking sort of a home first mm. approach, mm. it's... Uh, I think there's a balance, you know. I mean, I, I, I've sort of gone full circle. My, my first, I, know, I reckon, three months in that COVID lockdown environment, I quite enjoyed. But I, I got to a point where... I just missed the oh. I just missed the the energy of an office environment. Absolutely, and, uh, and now we're sort of blending it a bit. But um, yes. I think there's a balance. But some of the elements you're talking about that sort of human side of it, where you can show your real self and you can bring mm. elements of your personal life back into the working environment. Those are the things we've got to try and hold on to. Yeah. I think. because yeah. this notion that we're work. And then there's separation, and then with this yeah. other person, yeah. I don't believe in that. Yeah. I, there's one person. Yeah, that person comes into work, and they yes. bring everything that's going on in their non-work life comes with them, and gotcha. vice versa. It goes both ways. Absolutely. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. And hopefully, COVID's going to you know enable that to be understood a bit a bit better. Yeah. No, I'm a huge fan. I'm I'm definitely optimistic. You know, it's kind of weird. Like we are technically in the first recession of first twenty years. You know, it's for Australia. It doesn't feel like a recession, and maybe that's just because it happened so rapidly that we haven't seen the the actual playouts of that yet. But also, I think everyone understands that it's very situational. It wasn't. I mean, I've got my own view on the systemic issues in you know finance as as a whole, but it, they certainly haven't been the cause of this current situation. Um, and so, I think everyone's sort of understanding, you know. Uh, do, doing, for example, doing the cap raise literally in the middle of a pandemic uh, and now a recession, it hasn't stopped us at all. And 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 you know, for for even though I'm sort of predicting over the next 48 hours, but it's looking very likely that we're going to reach that target. Oh, which awesome. you know, which is uh, congrats, it, thank you. Yeah, and and the team was a little bit, you know, is this the timing for it? But it was like, well, no, yeah, because we we believe in it, so we're going to do it. But I think the nature of work has changed and I'm anticipating that it will be a positive. Yeah. I think a lot of businesses are actually doing particularly, you know, they're, they're, sorry, there are some businesses and some business models that are doing well, but I, I still think that you know, the, the great, a great portion of the world and certainly Australia is struggling and um, we need to be very mindful of that. And, and, and whilst there are some you know, great stories out there and certainly financial service companies appear to be doing quite well, yes, I'm, I'm very mindful of the longer term impacts on the on the broader economy that are at play here and you know the longer the situation goes on the more deep they're going to be and this yeah. there's you know there's issues like government debt to consider and you know there's lots of um looming challenges for us but remaining optimistic and and uh, putting one foot in front of the other is is sometimes the best you can do in these environments and uh, and that's certainly the approach we're taking and um interestingly financial services companies across our portfolio and 
even if we look at the Victorian uh, subset of that, uh, the performance of those firms is actually exceptional. Um, we just had our June 30 board meeting, our year-end numbers, and we were seeing record profit numbers and record growth numbers in a number of our firms. Wow. It was, it was quite incredible. And I suppose the question I ask myself is, is that a short-term reaction to the pandemic insofar as people want advice right now? Mm. Um, and is there a longer-term systemic issue coming uh, caused by you know, people essentially are losing their livelihoods? Yeah, th- that, that's the watch out for me. Um, but certainly the short-term numbers have been, have been excellent. And anecdotally, the feedback I get from our firms is that the level of inquiry and the level of engagement is at an all-time uh, high. Now, that might simply highlight that financial services has been the domain in terms of the consumer segment of people who have more resources um, yep. and, and, and therefore aren't as directly impacted by this potentially. Yes. yes. Okay. Um, so it's not, a, it's not necessarily a proxy for the whole, the whole marketplace. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, look, I, I, out of respect for your time, I'm going to thank you so much for no jumping in, having, having a very wide-ranging conversation, which I've learned a lot. And, and uh, yeah, so, so thank you so much for coming in and talking about, um, you know, especially around the valuations of those companies. Um, really quickly, can you just sign off with how would a younger advisor get in and how would an older advisor get out? Well, this is the ultimate challenge. When we sat down at the dining room table and we asked what problems are we trying to solve and mm. who's got them, you've just nailed what we the conclusion we came to. How does a young person who's got a mortgage and kids raise the capital and afford to buy the equity from the older person who wants to retire and they're, they're trying to get a maximum valuation for their life's work. How do you solve that conundrum? Totally. How do you get alignment? Yeah. Because if you think about succession, succession is code for selling. Yes. And growth, growth is code for buying, whether that means right. literally buying or organic growth. Those two forces, succession and growth, are diametrically opposed. Yes, yes. Okay. And they've- Competing. Competing. Yes. And they've been treated as two separate forces- and just about every business model that's ever since yeah, capitalism existed. Exactly. Yeah. The problem we decided to solve was how do you simultaneously solve succession and growth? Awesome. How, how do you do that? Both of those things at once. And the model that we've come up with, that we've designed, has achieved that. So essentially, what we do is we incrementally buy equity from older, you know, often founders or second generation business owners, and recycle that equity into the hands of the young, up and coming future leaders. We want to transfer the equity element from one generation to the next over a time frame that suits both of those parties. And of course, there's things like, how do you finance that? And, and we, we've, we've answered all those questions. So we've got a solution to all of that. That's essentially the core value proposition that we came up with around that dining room table about six years ago. Awesome. And so for any advisor that's saying to themselves, actually, I would like to know more how do they find out more? Oh, yeah, sure. Just give me a call. Um, <laughs> yeah, give me a call. Send me an email. Um, and uh, and that, that's that's how it works. You know, and What's the website? Uh, AZNGA.com. Uh, yeah. You can go paul.barrett at AZNGA.com. That's me. And um, yeah, I, I love talking to advisors. I love talking to accounts. And I love talking to the future leaders of those firms because we're narrow and deep. That's all we do. Awesome. Look, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.